You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. On this show, you'll hear everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and I'll help you make sense of the latest media reports into research on the causes of mental illness and potential new treatments. Along the way, I'll be trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues and also try to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And this is the Wednesday, August 13, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. Uh, All the kids are back in school by now here in the metro Atlanta, Georgia area. Hope that you had a good summer, even though obviously it went too quickly. And to start off tonight's show, I'm going to be talking about panic attacks or anxiety attacks. Uh, This is a subject that certainly is extremely important in mental health, and I've certainly talked about it before, but came across this article ambitiously titled, How to End an Anxiety Attack, and I thought it would be good to review that with you, and also just spend some time talking in general about panic anxiety attacks, and give you some information and perspective, and hopefully between the information I'm going to give you and our review of this article, those of you who suffer from panic attacks can get some information that will help you deal with them better. And also, hopefully, those of you who do not suffer from them and somehow or another could never understand what they are or how devastating they could be and what someone, perhaps someone close to you who suffers from them is dealing with Uh, that you'll understand better also what is going on. So first of all, again, let me just introduce the subject. Panic attack, anxiety attack, we use the terms interchangeably. Ironically enough, the medical terminology is panic attack, even though panic sounds less like a technical name than anxiety. And basically to describe what one is for those who Fortunately for them, have never experienced it. It's basically like this. One minute, you're perfectly calm, and the next minute, you are in sheer terror with the worst possible, undescribable anxiety you've ever had in your life. You feel like you cannot breathe, like you are not getting any air, like you're suffocating. And your heart is pounding and racing. feels like it's about to come out of your chest. This is why most people, when they experience their first panic attack, are quite firmly convinced that they are having a heart attack, or they are going to die, or that something else awful is going to happen one way or another. There is this tremendous, tremendous sense of dread and uh, loss of control. And the physical symptoms are literally head-to-toe when it comes to a panic attack. Uh, People with this type of episode have lightheadedness, 
and in many cases may pass out. Uh, there's also queasiness or nausea, and um, sometimes people will have such severe anxiety, they will vomit. And there's also tightness in the throat, uh, the classic expression, lump in your throat from uh, anxiety, this definitely can happen to someone suffering from a panic attack. There's also tremor. Someone can be shaking, not just their hands, but uh, all over their body. And because of the rapid, shallow breathing, the hyperventilation, that usually results in numbness and tingling in the hands and feet. So there really are uh, myriad symptoms that someone is going through. It's quite dramatic. The onset is extremely sudden. Usually the worst of the symptoms comes and goes anywhere from 10 minutes to half an hour. But the aftermath can last for uh, a couple or more hours afterwards. And uh, usually in the aftermath of a panic attack, someone is extremely weak and debilitated. And again, you, for those of you who don't know what this is, it is not usually triggered by any acute, obvious stress. So in most cases, the person could not tell you where it came from. In fact, by definition, by strict definition, a true panic attack is what we call spontaneous, meaning there is absolutely no obvious trigger that brings on the episode. It literally comes on from out of nowhere. Now, to be sure, it usually doesn't happen to someone who does not have some kind of stress in their life. Usually there is, but it's not something that they were dealing with right at the moment that the panic attack happened. Now, there are certainly specific life situations that can bring them on. Someone who suffers fear of heights, for example, will have one triggered by being uh, in a very tall building and looking out over the balcony, for example. Someone with severe social anxiety will have one when they're in a crowded room where there are a lot of strangers and there's no obvious way to get out. Um, the uh, anxiety triggered by a lack of obvious way to get out also reminds me that there are panic attacks with or without what's called agoraphobia. Now, agoraphobia is the fear of either very large open spaces or very closed, confining type spaces. And someone with panic attacks uh, with agoraphobia uh, certainly are more likely to have them in a situation uh, such as those. But if someone's panic attacks are only triggered by social situations, that, strictly speaking, isn't panic disorder that person's diagnosis would be social anxiety. And likewise, uh, if someone's panic attacks are only triggered by specific phobias like flying, like heights, and so on, then the diagnosis would be that particular specific phobia as opposed to panic disorder per se. Well, with that introduction and bit of knowledge for you, <clears throat> let's examine this article entitled, How to End an Anxiety Attack. It starts off by saying, when you're having a panic attack or anxiety attack, the symptoms, 
chest pain, flushing skin, a racing heart, and difficulty breathing can make you feel like you're going to faint, lose your mind, or die. But, of course, the reality is you won't. The key to surviving is to learn about anxiety attacks and practice the skills you need to get through them. Now, these techniques take some getting used to, and as the uh, article says, it takes practice. But learning how to cope with anxiety attacks is important so that the fear of having another one won't keep you at home or limit your activities. Now, in fact, we have a name for that fear, the paralyzing fear of having an anxiety attack that keeps someone home and uh, keeps them from going out and enjoying their normal activities. That fear is called anticipatory anxiety, the fear of having anxiety, the fear of having a panic attack. A study in Alternative Therapies in Health and Medicine in 2013 found that multiple approaches to managing anxiety, including strategies like breathing and journaling, can help. So here's how to stop an anxiety attack and recover. First step is to accept the attack. People have this powerful idea to make the attack stop. But you can't make it stop through force of will. However, if you look back at your history, you'll see that every attack does indeed stop, even if it feels awful for a while. Your best first step is to simply notice your symptoms and accept the fact that you're having an attack. This can be extremely challenging if it's one of your first attacks, but after that, you'll know more about what to expect. I want to expand on this a little bit. There's no doubt that a panic attack is an extremely frightening, disturbing event, and uh, I don't need to tell those of you who had them about this. Those of you who've never had them, you cannot imagine the sheer terror that someone having one is going through. Uh, And this notion that you should just accept that you're having it sounds impossible. But I think it's a good suggestion uh, if you are just trying to tell yourself, okay, I'm having a panic attack, it's going to be awful, but it's going to end, and then I'll be okay. This is actually going to help you get through it better than to take the approach that oh no, I'm having a panic attack, this is going to be horrible, how can I stop it, but I can't stop it, that's going to make the anxiety attack worse. So it really is better to just say, okay, I'm having one, it's going to be awful, let me just get through it until it's over, and then I'll be okay. Now this next suggestion is quite interesting. Take notes. Once you know or you realize that you're having an attack, try to jot down a few of the symptoms and thoughts you are experiencing. This can help you put your attack into perspective. One of the things that worsens anxiety and can make it develop into a panic attack is looking at those symptoms in a catastrophic way. And this is what uh, I was talking about when we were talking about accepting the fact that you're having the attack instead of looking at the symptoms in, as the article says, a catastrophic way. Writing down what you're experiencing can help prevent you from imagining the worst. 
I also think it's a good suggestion because when you are observing yourself that closely and trying to make these observations and write them down, I honestly think that's an excellent distraction from the severe anxiety that you're going through in the first place. It's giving you something else to focus on. You're focused on self-observation. You're focused on the pen and paper and writing down words and recording your symptoms. And uh, that, I think, is is an important and helpful distraction from the anxiety that you're going through and all the awful feeling physical symptoms that the panic attack is giving you. Easier said than done. Probably easier for someone who's a veteran of the attacks. It will also give you good information you can bring to your next appointment with your therapist or your psychiatrist who's helping you cope with the panic attacks. And we'll have more tips on how to end a panic attack after this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Come on, follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Followsniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Followsniffles.com. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's FoodLink was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that dizziness may be a sign of heart disease, iron deficiency, high or low blood pressure, low blood sugar, or an inner ear infection? Dizziness can take the form of a spinning sensation, also known as vertigo, or a feeling of lightheadedness. The individual can also feel faint or have a rapid heartbeat. If you take high blood pressure medication, remember to take the medication daily as directed to control your blood pressure. Diabetics must remember to eat after taking their medication and to eat at regular intervals. If you have anemia, make sure to take a multivitamin that contains iron and to eat vegetables such as spinach. Dizziness after a cold or flu may be due to a virus. If you have dizziness, it is important to see your doctor for a complete physical examination. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, you're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, and the topic is how to end an anxiety attack. Before the break, uh, we were talking about just accept that you're having it rather than see it as some catastrophic event and even try to take notes on recording what symptoms you're having during the attack. Now, this next tip is called just breathe. Now, certainly, the rapid, shallow breathing is the hallmark of having an anxiety attack and the most dramatic uh, part of, of it. What causes the most distress is feeling short of breath. But you can make the feeling worse by taking short, shallow breaths or by allowing the anxiety attack to direct your body to take short, shallow, rapid breaths. Much much of the advice about breathing and how to control it in order to mitigate the effects of a panic attack involves taking long, slow, deep breaths and trying to consciously force your breathing that way, to take control of your breathing and force yourself to take long, slow, deep breaths in through your nose, out through your mouth. This will counteract the tendency of the anxiety attack to make your breathing very rapid and very shallow, and it will, in many cases, actually end the anxiety attack sooner than it otherwise would. Uh, Now, the article recommends something called belly breathing, and you could compare this type of breathing you'll need to the breathing of infants whose bellies rise and fall with each inhale and exhale. So when an attack starts, exhale deeply, loosen your shoulders, and focus on some longer, deeper inhales and exhales that let your belly rise and fall. Place one hand on your belly if you need to feel this happening. I think that's a good suggestion. But again, the core of what to do about your breathing when you're having a panic attack is taking long, slow, deep breaths. Slow your breathing down as much as possible. Take breaths as deeply as possible. And uh, be aware of your belly rising and falling, as it says, with each inhale or exhale. Breathing in through your nose, out through your mouth. And this will usually end it sooner. Now, the next tip says relax. So, no, they're not joking. Of course, it's not easy to just relax, but let's uh, go into detail about what they're saying. Once you start to observe your body during a panic attack, you might find that certain parts of your body clench up during an attack. It could be your lower back, your upper back, your neck, your shoulders, your jaw, your arms, your hands, any part of your body. But muscle tension is certainly very common with anxiety in general. And of course, it would be much worse during an anxiety attack. And you can make a deliberate effort to relax those parts of your body by actually consciously tightening them and then letting go of that tension to relax that part of the body. Or, if that part of your body is so tense that you can't do it, 
then pick a part of your body that would respond. Uh, maybe your toes, maybe your shoulders, anywhere that isn't irreparably tensed up. And then the more you can breathe deeply and relax, the easier it will be to cope. Yeah, I think that the idea of trying to relax tense parts of your body, uh, even to the extent of purposely tensing up those parts that are already tense for the sake of then being able to relax them easier, that, that goes very well with and complements the idea of the deep, slow breathing to help bring the attack under control. <clears throat> All right, now the next tip is talk to yourself. When you give yourself permission to have the attack, say it out loud. Um, I want to read that again. Give yourself permission to have the attack. That gets back to what they were saying before about accept it. If you just say to yourself, okay, I'm having a panic attack. I just have to get through this as best I can. So again, that's like giving yourself permission to have it and help yourself get through it. Remind yourself that the attack will end and it won't kill you or cause you to faint. Understanding the physiology of fainting and reminding yourself of it is important. People faint when their blood pressure drops. A panic attack can make you feel like you're going to faint, but you won't because your blood pressure doesn't drop during an attack. Remind yourself out loud of truths like these to counter your fears. Well, I agree in large part with that tip that the article mentions, um, but unfortunately it's not the case that fainting never happens. It's rare, uh, but it certainly may happen. Still, uh, I do agree with the idea of reassuring yourself that nothing bad is going to happen, that it is a panic attack, that you're going to survive, you're not going to have a heart attack, you're not going to die, and even if you have to remind and reassure yourself of these things while talking out loud, uh, I think that's a very important uh, and useful step. And the next tip is return to the present. Although your gut response might be to leave the stressful situation if one triggered the panic attack in the first place, to leave immediately, don't leave. Let your anxiety level come down first. Then you can decide if you want to leave or if there's a way to get back to whatever you were doing when the attack started. Staying in the moment will help you overcome anxiety but it's hard to do this at first. It's taking the leap of faith and being willing to do things that terrify you. This takes a lot of courage. Uh, so again, this would be applicable to someone who has a specific place or situation trigger their panic attack, not someone who's had a spontaneous one. And lastly, and most importantly, seek help. And remember that there is help for sufferers of anxiety attacks. People often fear the worst when they're having an anxiety attack. Most of the time, there's no underlying physical problem, such as a real heart attack. But you should get the medical all clear if you have repeat episodes, just to be sure you don't need additional treatment. Then, find a cognitive behavioral therapist with experience treating anxiety 
to help you through. I would also like to suggest a very good book that uh, is in its, I think, fourth edition. It's been a very popular title for many years that also may help those of you who suffer from anxiety and panic attacks. It's called the Anxiety and sorry, the Anxiety and Phobia Workbook, and uh, you can search for it on uh, Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Again, the Anxiety and Phobia Workbook. It's an, uh, a very uh, popular title has been for many years, and it basically walks you through how to cope better with anxiety and to prevent it. And also, want to mention, there are many effective medications that are used to treat panic attacks. Uh, antidepressants that are SSRIs or SNRIs, uh, Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Selexor, uh, Lexapro, uh, any of those can be used to treat anxiety attacks. Whether they are specifically approved to treat them or not, they all have the same mechanism. And likewise, SNRIs like Effexor and Pristique and Cymbalta also can help with anxiety attacks. Uh, so these are appropriate and safe medications to treat panic disorder, but in reality they are not going to work right away. Like uh, other reasons people take antidepressants, they take a few weeks, and those of you who know me and know my show know that I don't recommend using sedatives to treat anxiety attacks. Of course, many people who suffer from anxiety attacks carry around things like Xanax and Ativan and Klonopin to take when they're having an acute attack. Uh, but my opinion is that rather than wait till you have one and take a sedative which may at least dope you up and may at worst interfere with thinking and memory and also land you in jail with a DUI, uh, it's better to take an antidepressant that you have to take every single day and give a couple of weeks or so to start working to keep your panic attacks under control. And that way, if that medicine is working the way it's supposed to, there won't be any need to carry around that dangerous addictive sedative. All right. Well, I hope that was helpful to those of you who suffer from anxiety attacks and to those of you who do not but want to understand better what is going on with someone who does suffer from them. And now, let's turn our attention to a somewhat interesting, somewhat disturbing social science experiment that concluded that people would rather give themselves electric shocks than just to be alone with their thoughts. A rather disturbing notion. Uh, so let's see what these researchers did and how they came to that conclusion. If you could have dinner alone with any person in the world, it would probably not be yourself. In fact, people will do almost anything to avoid spending even a few minutes listening to their own inner monologues. That's what social psychology researchers discovered during a series of experiments focused on understanding how well we put up with our own thoughts once the usual distractions are stripped away. They originally 
started investigating the topic because the question of whether or not we are able to deliberately keep ourselves entertained with only our thoughts seemed like a basic, fundamental question that hadn't received a lot of attention. Previous research has shown that people tend to be happier when they are focused on the task at hand, such as reading a book, having sex, or studying, rather than letting their minds wander at the same time. But what happens when you take away these external activities, leaving only the wandering mind? According to the research, whose work was published in the journal Science, we get very uncomfortable very quickly. And we'll hear about the study design and results when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about a social science experiment that concluded we don't like to be alone with our thoughts. And we're going to see how in a moment. In six experiments in the laboratory, researchers asked more than 400 college students to sit alone in a room without their usual worldly distractions, instructing them to entertain themselves with only their thoughts as best as they could. After spending only 6 to 15 minutes alone with their thoughts, many students admitted that the experience was not enjoyable. They also reported that they had difficulty concentrating and that their minds tended to wander. And it gets worse. In a similar experiment, 42 people were given the option of sitting quietly for 15 minutes with no distractions or giving themselves an electric shock. More than two-thirds of the men and one-quarter of the women chose the shocks over quality me time. And these were people who told researchers beforehand that they would be willing to pay to avoid the shocks. Now, I have to say, this certainly is quite surprising and disturbing, uh, but 
there's one thing about the study design that gives me pause. These are all college students, and if you're a social scientist, uh, you're usually doing research like this at a major university, and uh, you're working with postdoctoral students who are studying at said university in the graduate program. So who are your likely research subjects going to be? Of course, they're going to be undergraduate students who are doing this either for course credit toward their undergraduate psychology major or perhaps uh, they're doing it for the remuneration for pocket money. But my point being that if the study population are just college students, to me, that absolutely is going to skew the results. Uh, This is not generalizable to the broader population. If you're talking about you know, people between the ages of, you know, 18 and 19 to 21 and 22, um, this is a generation who is used to having their mind occupied all the time. Uh, TV uh, that is edited with rapid fire shifts and smartphones and cell phones and laptops and tablets and what have you and social media so there's always a new stimulus and you can see where this generation used to all the stimulation is going to be more prone to be uncomfortably bored very quickly than other people alright so I think again that is definitely uh, a flaw to be found in the study design and certainly in my opinion anyway can uh, make the results not at all generalizable and temper what conclusions can be drawn. We'll see when we get to the end of the article, do the authors come out and admit that. Now, researchers conducted several more experiments to identify possible ways to help people learn to get along with their restless minds. They tried a lot of different kinds of interventions to try to help people to just enjoy it. But surprisingly, none of those seemed to increase people's enjoyment with just spending time alone with their thoughts. This included letting participants do the experiment at home. Even in a familiar environment, the students enjoyed it less and found it harder to concentrate compared to the results in the lab. 32% admitted that they cheated by doing something else at the same time, such as listening to music or using their cell phone or getting out of their chair. The researchers also directed the students' wayward thoughts by giving them something to play with. They tried a variety of different instructions, giving various topics that people said would be enjoyable to think about, such as being on vacation, having superpowers, suggestions for how they should try to control or not control their thoughts, as well as giving them an object to fiddle around with. While people preferred having an external activity over being alone with their thoughts, deciding what to think about ahead of time didn't make the experience more enjoyable. Technology is often blamed 
for our restlessness and inability to sit still, but this could be a two-way street. The author said it's hard to say what is causing what, but it's possible that our obsession with technology could be a consequence and a symptom. We may gravitate towards smartphones, television, and the Internet to avoid the awkwardness of being alone with our thoughts. On the other hand, spending so much time shooting at angry birds and texting our friends could deprive us of opportunities to practice entertaining ourselves with plans and daydreams. More research is needed to better understand why people dislike being alone with their thoughts, but there may already be a way to learn to get along with ourselves. Meditation and similar techniques, which involve sitting still and focusing on your breathing or an object, could help us learn to enjoy spending time alone. Researchers found a glimpse of the power of meditation in their experiments. They found a very small but significant correlation between people's experience with meditation and their enjoyment of the, quote, thinking period, unquote, which suggests, suggests people with more meditation experience can enjoy this more. But for someone who is very bored and uncomfortable being alone with their thoughts, so much so that they would just as soon take a brief electric shock in order to be able to stop doing it, uh, for that person, I doubt seriously they would be interested in trying meditation. That might be their worst nightmare. So we see while the authors don't specifically talk about the demographic of the study population, they do mention the impact of technology in this behavior, uh, that the technology does play a role, but it could be both a consequence and a symptom uh, of the inability to sit still and be alone comfortably with our thoughts. And uh, lest you're concerned about any pain and suffering the subjects felt, uh, the, the shock was certainly mild. And um, much like you would get, you know, in the winter if you're standing on a rug and you touch a doorknob, something like that, nothing nothing serious. Certainly uh, anything more painful than that would not have been approved by the Institutional Research Board that governs um, doing research on human subjects. All right, well now let's turn our attention to ways to be more patient. That would certainly help, wouldn't it? Being impatient, certainly a major, major problem for people's uh, attitude and behavior. And if we could all be more patient, that would certainly improve our mental health, would it not? So I came across this article that touts nine ways to be more patient. Um, so that's promising to be very helpful. Let's take a look at the nine ways and see what we think of them. Well, first of all, with the compounded demands of work and home heaped on your plate, it can be hard to be patient. But being impatient can make matters worse. Impatience leads to stress, 
which can cause health problems, anxiety, depression, trouble sleeping, high blood pressure. If you have trouble being patient, don't worry. It's a skill that you can learn through practice. But like anything else, it takes the dedication and motivation to learn and practice these skills in order to become more patient. So these nine tips are intended to improve your equanimity. Now, the first one is control your calendar. When you overbook your day and try to cram 20 hours worth of activities into eight, you'll find yourself rushing to complete each one and move on to the next. Instead, schedule fewer activities and leave yourself a cushion of time around each event. Then you can take the time you need to complete each item without added pressure. I could not agree with this tip more. Being under time pressure is a major cause of stress, anxiety, impatience, and anger. Uh, And all of this can add to stress, and as the article says, raise blood pressure, even seriously put you at risk for heart attack. The second tip is minimize stressful situations. Well, of course, wouldn't we all like to do that? Uh, Easier said than done, isn't it? While you can't always steer away from stress, in many cases, you can choose not to take on an activity that you find stressful. For example, if spending time with a certain person always works your last nerve, rethink whether this is a healthy relationship. I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, Sometimes people need to have sort of a friend divorce uh, when that friendship goes sour and all it does is add to their stress level. Or, let's see see this other example. If getting groceries at noon puts you in long lines that you don't have time to wait in, reschedule your shopping at a less busy time and find something else to do that isn't subject to uh, sort of rush hour type uh, conditions. Uh, I definitely think organizing certain difficult tasks that way will help to manage your stress um, and therefore reduce the chances that you will become impatient. And I think also what goes along with this tip is people who overcommit themselves. They're often asked to volunteer for things. Uh, They're already spread too thin, but they say yes anyway. You know what? It's okay to say no, and uh, it's going to help you not to be overcommitted and overstressed and therefore impatient. So uh, learn to say no and not be afraid that people will dislike you afterwards. All right, we'll take a commercial break here. We'll come back with more tips to be patient. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after these messages. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know skipping doses of medication can be dangerous? If you have a chronic medical condition like diabetes or high blood pressure, it's important to take the medication prescribed by your physician. It is also important to remember that although you take a medicine to treat a condition, it is not a cure for the underlying medical condition. It is used to control it. For example, taking medication for diabetes will lower your blood sugar. However, if you stop taking the medication, the sugar will rise again. Changes in both diet and lifestyle, like adding exercise to your routine, are equally important. 
Working with your physician by following his or her recommendations is the key to controlling your disease and maintaining your health. Ask questions if you don't understand something. Taking control of your health is the key to wellness. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back once again to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about nine ways to be more patient. And we're up to number three, slow down. Impatience is a rushed and frantic state of being that's unpleasant for both you and those around you. Combat your impatient tendencies by consciously making an effort to slow things down. If you find yourself going a mile a minute and snapping at everyone in your path, recognize that you're spiraling into impatience. Take a step back and stop pushing yourself so hard. And that goes especially for driving. If you're always in a hurry to get somewhere, you're going to be very impatient and angry. This is going to raise your stress level. Leave yourself extra time. Don't rush. Slow down. Number four, take a breath break. Focus on your breathing. No matter where you are or what you're doing, you can always regain your composure by simply becoming aware of your breath. Pay attention to breathing in and out a few times more slowly and deeply than you usually do. You'll feel calmer before you know it. Well, I definitely agree with that. Remember, at the beginning of the show, we talked about the ultimate severe anxiety and stress, that being a panic attack, and taking long, slow, deep breaths can certainly counteract that. So it's a good thing to do anytime you find yourself getting a little impatient or stressed to calm down. Now, this next tip five, change shoes. Hmm, what's behind impatience? Many times it's other people. Maybe someone else isn't moving the process forward as quickly as you'd like or doesn't understand what you need done. In these cases, it can help to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Does the other person have a lot on their plate? Have they recently gone through a difficult time at work or at home? Most people aren't trying to make your life harder. Cutting them some slack can help you curb your frustration. While I certainly agree that this would help people to be less impatient and less stressed, let's face it, that one is a lot easier said than done. Number six, write down your values. 
Remembering what you care about most can help you keep perspective on things that are less important. Writing down your values can help you remember, for example, that helping others is important to you. With that in mind, it's easier not to sweat the small stuff. This also brings to mind the gratitude list that some people like to write and that many therapists recommend. This means write down a list of things that you're grateful for. And this is an excellent way to put things in perspective and reduce your stress. Number seven, remember how you want to be treated. Can you recall the last time that someone was impatient with you? How did it make you feel? No one likes to be rushed or made to feel bad for going at their own pace. When you feel the urge to express your impatience with someone, whether it's an adult or a child, remember to treat others the way you'd like to be treated. Number eight, run, bike, walk, or swim. Exercise, which of course releases endorphins, the feel-good hormones that improve your mental health, uh, works very well to help soothe impatient feelings uh, than sweating the things that are getting you so upset to begin with. So uh, this is an adaptive way of sweating as opposed to a maladaptive way, so to speak. And uh, again, exercise is well known to be an excellent stress reliever. And if you feel good after your exercise, I would definitely expect you to be less apt to be impatient. And lastly, number nine, think ahead. Whatever is causing your impatience, ask yourself, will this really matter five years from now or even next week? Many times the answer is no. Much of what brings feelings of impatience may be things that present themselves as urgent but are not really important when you stop to think about it. All right, so there you go, some mostly very helpful tips to avoid being impatient. Uh, And uh, hopefully if you can practice them and live by them, it will help you to be more patient and feel better and less stressed. Now this next item on the show has been making the rounds on the internet and even on one of the morning uh, TV talk shows on one of the networks, but I couldn't resist talking about how just one simple question can identify narcissistic people. Um, This is not what you think. This is not one of those pop psych uh, questionnaires or uh, joke or or trick types of things. Uh, This actually comes from Uh, serious uh, scientists at a major university, Ohio State to be exact. But scientists have developed and validated a new method to identify which people are narcissistic. So how do you do it? You just ask them. In a series of 11 experiments involving more than 2,200 people of all ages, the researchers found they could reliably identify narcissistic people by asking them this exact question, including the note, to what extent do you agree with this statement, I am a narcissist? Note, the word narcissist means egotistical, self-focused, and vain. So that's it. You read someone 
that question, you include the note, and then people will tell you whether they're narcissistic or not. Participants rated themselves on a scale of 1, not very true of me, to 7, very true of me. And the results showed that people's answer to this question lined up very closely with several other validated measures of narcissism, including the widely used Narcissistic Personality Inventory. The difference is that this new survey, which researchers call the Single Item Narcissism Scale, has only that one question, while the Narcissistic Personality Inventory has 40 questions to answer. So at the very least, it's a much faster and easier to administer and more convenient tool for social psychologists and other scientists to do research on personality disorders. People who are willing to admit they are more narcissistic than others probably actually are more narcissistic. People who are narcissists are almost proud of the fact. You can ask them directly because they don't see narcissism as a negative quality. They believe they are superior to other people and they're fine with saying that publicly. Understanding narcissism has many implications for a society that extend beyond the impact on the individual narcissist's life. For example, narcissistic people have low empathy and empathy is one key motivator of philanthropic behavior such as donating money or time to organizations. Overall, narcissism is problematic for both individuals and society. Those who think they are already great don't try to improve themselves. And narcissism is bad for society because people who are only thinking of themselves and their own interests are less helpful to others. One experiment found that the single-item narcissism scale was positively related to each of the seven subscales of the Narcissistic Personality Inventory, which measure various components of narcissism, including vanity, exhibitionism, exploitativeness, authority, superiority, self-sufficiency, and entitlement. People scoring high in narcissism were more likely to engage in risky sexual behaviors and had difficulty maintaining long-term committed romantic relationships. People who scored higher on narcissism on the single-item narcissism scale had both positive and negative outcomes. They reported more positive feelings, more extroversion, and marginally less depression. But they also showed less agreeableness and more anger, shame, guilt, and fear. In addition, people scoring high on single-item narcissism scale showed negative interpersonal outcomes, such as having poor relationships with others and less pro-social behavior when their ego was threatened. So there you have it, folks. And uh, if you want to try this out on someone you think is a narcissist and you're not afraid of the reaction you might get, then here it is again. You just 
read this to someone, to what extent do you agree with this statement? Quote, I am a narcissist, unquote. And then you say the note which reads, the word narcissist means egotistical, self-focused, and vain. If they say yes, then watch out. And lastly on tonight's show, I often get asked, well, what's a good diet for maintaining good mental health? Fish is brain food, and here's more evidence. Researchers found that eating baked or broiled fish once a week is good for the brain, regardless of how much omega-3 fatty acid it contains. Findings were published online recently in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine. The antioxidant effect of omega-3 fatty acids, which are found in high amounts in fish and also seeds and nuts and certain oils, have been associated with improved health, particularly brain health. The study shows that people who ate a diet included baked or broiled but not fried fish have larger brain volumes in regions associated with memory and cognition. They didn't find a relationship between omega-3 levels and these brain changes. They were tapping into a more general set of lifestyle factors affecting brain health, of which diet is just one part. Baked or broiled fish contains higher levels of omega-3s than fried fish because the fatty acids are destroyed in the high heat of frying. So they took that into consideration. People who ate baked or broiled fish at least once a week had greater gray matter brain volumes in areas of the brain responsible for memory and cognition. And they were also more likely to have had a college education than those who didn't eat fish regularly. So, but there was no association between the brain and blood levels of omega-3s. So it's lifestyle factors other than eating fish are definitely important, but the diet is part of it. Well, there you have it. Going to have to wrap up tonight's show quickly. Hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week till next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.